Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 25 is where we will be this morning. We'll finish 25 and make our way into 26 this morning. I love Christmas, and since it's my favorite time of year, since there is a house for uh, houses up on the left right here in front of the church, it already has their Christmas lights up. I'm going to interpret that, that it is free game to begin the holiday season, at least in my preaching. This morning, I'll turn your attention as we begin. We're going to continue in Acts, but I want to turn your attention to one of my favorite characters in the so-called Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, the seasoned brother named Simeon. We're offered very few details of this aging man, Simeon, other than that he is older, he's righteous, he's devout, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. God had blessed him by revealing to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he, that, uh, uh, that he would not die until he placed his eyes upon the promised Messiah. The description we have of Simeon in Luke suggests that he was probably a staple in Jerusalem, a common figure. Daily you may find, you probably find him wandering around Jerusalem looking for the Messiah. At that time, Jerusalem was a bustling city. Tens of thousands would come to visit the holy city, which at that time was over a thousand years old when Jesus was born. They would come to see the sacred places. They would come to see all of the, city, the city's rich history. And they would, of course, come to see the beautiful temple built by King Herod. But if you explored the city long enough, you would probably be sure to have bumped into this poor old man hanging around as if he was in search of something he had lost. The locals probably whispered, well, that's just Simeon. Don't mind him. Maybe he's a little off. The believer, uh, he, he believes by, by, by coming here every day, he's going to somehow see the Messiah who's going to bring the consolation of the restoration of Israel. The visitors would have asked him, hey man, what are you doing? He would have said, God told me that I will not die until my eyes see the Messiah. One day, which probably seemed no different than any other, the Spirit of God did lead Simeon into the temple at the same time that Joseph and Mary brought Jesus, the baby, to make purifications according to the law of Moses. And it was then when Simeon's aging eyes fixed its gaze upon this child, the Holy Spirit awakened his soul, causing him to take the child Jesus into his arms and bless him, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now why begin here as we're going to make it to Acts 26? Well, in seeing Jesus, Simeon confessed, Lord, I have seen enough. He said, I'm ready to depart in peace. In seeing this child, I've seen the hope, I've seen the consolation, I've seen the restoration of Israel, and I've seen the revelation of God going forth to the nations. I'm ready, Lord, take me, he said. Acts chapter 26 this morning, Paul is going to make his sixth, and for all of us, thankfully, his final defense in the book of Acts as he heads to Rome. And Paul's defense, I believe, serves as really a summation of Simeon's declaration. Paul, like Simeon this morning, will be viewed a bit crazy. Actually, he's going to be called. They're going to say, you are out of your mind, Paul. But Paul's 
the apostles' confession will remain clear. God has opened my eyes to see the Messiah. And what I have seen, I have seen the one who's come to restore Israel, and I've seen the one who is the light, who is the revelation of God to go forth to the nations. Maybe we could see it, say it this way. In Jesus is contained the hope of Israel, the light of the nations, the true treasure of the kingdom. Hopefully I can show you that from our text this morning. Jesus is he's the hope of Israel. He's the light to the nations. He's the true treasure of the kingdom. We're going to consider, we're going to make our way through the rest of chapter 25, beginning in verse 13, and we'll, we'll make it all the way to the end of chapter 26. Believe it or not, we have two sermons left, uh, if God sees it that way. Uh, the next two Sundays, 27 and 28, and we will conclude our series in the book of Acts. But this morning we'll, take, we'll tackle this text under two divisions. We're going to look at the final defense of Paul. We're going to look at the kingdom appeal of Paul. Before I do that, let me pray briefly. God, we come to you. I, I come to you humbly now before we read your word. Your eternal word, the word by which Paul would say, man, I don't want to say anything more than what Moses and the prophets said. And that is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the hope of Israel, that he is the revelation of God to the nations, and that he is the true treasure of the kingdom. God, let me, let us in this room say nothing more than that. Show us that from the text this morning, God. I pray by so doing you would awaken our affections, deepen our affections for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So we'll begin with this final defense in verse 13 of chapter 25. And as I said, this will be Paul's sixth and his final defense. However, this one is different than the other five. This one comes not as a result of accusations made against Paul, but instead, this defense is going to come because Festus desires to get his ducks in a row before he sends Paul off to Rome. Festus desires the thoughts and the affirmation of Agrippa in this matter. We see there in verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and they greeted Festus. This is Agrippa II. This is the son of Herod Agrippa who died back in chapter 12. He's accompanied here by his sister Bernice. Their grandfather was Herod the Great, who served as ruler over the region during Jesus' birth. So Festus is very aware that getting this important couple's affirmation before he sends Paul off to the emperor would serve him well, politically speaking. Verse 14, And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Festus is basically just testifying to basic Roman law here. Verse 17, so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. So Festus is just reiterating what we learned last week, which we've already know from, chapter, from the previous chapter, that the charges against Paul are bogus. 
that the charges in no way warrant the, the execution, the call for execution that they are asking for. Their anger concerns a religious, interreligious de- debate over Judaism, which Festus cares nothing of and actually knows nothing of. Verse 19. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. When Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So Festus, he shares no interest in Paul's dealings here. But interestingly, though, in verse 22, Agrippa does. Verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Felix, to, to Festus, sorry, I would like to hear the man myself. He said to him, tomorrow you will hear him. So now in verse 23, the stage is set for what we're seeing is this sixth and final defense of the Apostle Paul. It's verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had nothing, done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. Verse 26. But I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner to, indicate the char- to not indicate the charges against him. So Festus's political motivation is evident here. He needs documentation. He needs good reasoning as to why Paul will be sent to Rome. Right? He, he, he has nothing to write, he says. And he knows that an inner religious debate within the Jews won't cut it. So he asked Agrippa to examine him and help him find something to write. He said it would be unacceptable that he goes without spelling out the clear charges. But there's something else going on here that Luke intends for us to see, and I might even add, I think he wants us to feel it. Notice the details he offers to set up this scene. He describes Agrippa and Bernice coming in with great pomp and circumstance. They enter this great hall with clout. It says, the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city are present surrounding them. The popular, the prominent, the powerful people of the city are present here. And then there is the Lord's Apostle, who not only enters, but is described as being brought into the room as a prisoner, most likely dragging his chains with him. And there's a contrast here I think we're supposed to see and feel it. So before these powerful, wealthy dignitaries and dominant figures stands Paul, the Lord's prisoned apostle. One side represents the kingdom of man and all its power and all its wisdom and all its might and the other side, what seems to be the puny kingdom of God. Agrippa motions for Paul to speak in verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now again, we have to remember what follows is not a legal defense. Festus has already stated Paul's innocence twice. So instead, Paul's going to provide a defense for his life and ministry to testify to the gospel of God's grace. He's very aware of his audience, as we're going to see in just a minute. So he stretches out his hand as he 
as, as, as greeting the king whom he will address first. He says in verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul says he's grateful to make his defense before Agrippa, who he says possesses a, a familiarity with both the Jewish people and the Jewish practices, unlike Festus, who's unaware of all of this. And his request is, grant me sincere and patient ears, king, as you hear. Paul opens by setting forth his life story. Verse 4, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, he says, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee. So Paul affirms again his Jewishness in every way. From birth up until the present, the Jews know who I am. They know my upbringing They know my faithfulness to Judaism. I was a prominent member of the strictest party of the faith, the Pharisees. Contrary to what has been said, King, I'm not on trial for rejecting, blaspheming, or doing anything against Judaism. I'm on trial because of my faith in Judaism, which they reject. Verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul is making a profoundly important point here. And, and he's setting the record straight for all that who are listening. He's saying, I am, I'm on trial for having hope in the promise made to our fathers. Paul's faith was not in violation of the Old Testament. (coughs) Rather, his belief in Jesus, Paul says, is faithfulness to the Old Testament, is faithfulness to God's promise to His people contained in the Old Testament. Life from death was the hope and the narrative of the Old Testament. It's the story itself. God called Abraham and promised that through him he would bring light and light to the nations. And how did that story begin? By life coming from the barren womb of his wife. Literally from the grave, the nation was birthed. Then from the the pit of slavery in Egypt, God brought redemption and life to his people through Moses whose story began with God drawing him out of a watery grave in the Nile River. Following Israel's long and persistent pursuit of sin, rebellion, and idolatry, God judged them by bringing upon them the surrounding nations, resulting in exile from the land. But through the prophets, God promised that that following exile, following Death, we might say, restoration and new life would spring forth. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God depicted that reality, the restoration of Israel that they needed. He depicted it by way of a resurrection. God spoke to His people through the prophet standing over the valley of a valley of death, a valley of dry bones, which He said depicted the whole house of Israel. And He instructed 
He was instructed to prophesy, calling the bones to hear the word of the Lord, causing God's breath and new life to go into them. Then the Lord said, quote, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves, O people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. See, Paul is making a very important statement in the book of Acts regarding the relationship of Jesus to the Old Testament. Paul is merely confessing the words of that seasoned saint Simeon. Though many deemed me crazy, Paul says. They're going to call him that directly in verse 25. What I am confessing, King, is simply the story of the hope of our nation, the hope of our fathers, the hope of the promises God gave to us. Why is it thought incredible that God raises the dead? Isn't that the hope and expectation of our fathers? Isn't that the message of the prophets itself? The story of Israel, with its long history, fascinating stories, difficult dynamics, is meant, was meant to teach us two primary things. It was meant to teach us of the faithfulness and the loving kindness of the one true God. And it was meant to teach us of the inability of mankind. Israel is our story. The Jews miss Jesus not because Jesus wasn't clear. Not because they misunderstood the words that were coming out of his mouth. They misplaced Jesus because they had misplaced themselves. They believed themselves to be spiritually alive when Jesus said they were spiritually dead. They needed what we need. Exactly what the prophet said. They needed resurrection. But they missed Him. Misplacing themselves in the pursuit of their religion, they misplaced the very hope of their religion. Remember when the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The promise and hope of Israel, which defined the Jewish faith, is realized in Jesus. Central to the hope of Israel is the fact that God indeed gives life to the dead. In verse 9, Paul illustrates this hope further through his personal testimony. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. And I not only looked up many, I looked up many of the saints in prison after receiving, locked up many of the saints in prison uh, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, look, not only do I know our Jewish faith, I know what it's like to be blinded by religious zeal and miss the point of our faith. I oppose the name of Jesus the one whom our faith was pointing to. I imprisoned many Christians under the direction of the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I was there casting my lot. I was voting on their... I was giving my approval. 
And I punished them, Paul says. I, even, I was trying to punish them to get them, get them to blaspheme and denounce their faith from city to city. But Paul says, while I was on this mission, Agrippa, I was journeying to Damascus, but I, something happened that I would never be the same from. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. We've already seen this twice, but this bright light shone from heaven, which could not be mistaken for the sun as it far surpassed it. The light shone around Paul and all those with him, causing them all to fall to the ground. However, a voice came particularly to Paul. Verse 14, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. This voice spoke to Paul in the Hebrew language, asking him, why are you persecuting? Stating it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad was a, a stick that served the similar purpose of a whip to prod and direct an animal. And by this appearance, Jesus is asking Paul, uh, why Paul is kicking against God's discipline, God's direction for his life, it's clear. Jesus was telling Paul not to resist the divine call upon his life and stop persecuting his people. And similar to Moses in Exodus 3, Jesus asked, uh, uh, Paul asked, Who are you, Lord? What is your name? And I said, Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then upon hearing the divine name of the Lord, Jesus commissions Paul in verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from, the peop from, from your people and from Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul is commissioned to serve God, to bear witness to Jesus. We've heard this multiple times. In addition, it says here, though, that Jesus promised Paul that in the future he would deliver Paul from the people that he's sent to proclaim the gospel to, both Jews and Gentiles. Scenes we've witnessed along our journey through the book of Acts. But in verse 18, Paul's going to spell out Jesus, or we could say Jesus spells out Paul's call to gospel ministry. And it provides us, I think, one of the clearest and robust, direct understandings of Christian conversion as the fulfillment of Israel's true hope. It's as if Paul is saying Agrippa in Jesus in the preaching of the gospel is contained the hope of Israel and the resurrection power to which Ezekiel was pointing us to. He says, my task that Jesus sent me to do was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus commissions Paul to open their eyes, which came through preaching of the gospel. We shouldn't miss the language here, right? Uh, it's directly related to Paul's conversion. Paul's eyes were opened after being blinded by this light which had nothing to do with the sun's radiation the glory of jesus overcame paul the the brilliant holiness of jesus exposed paul to his yes religious zeal but his self-righteousness he knew that in his religious state he was he was dead paul needed resurrection 
And in seeing the Lord rightly, Paul was able to see himself accurately, allowing him to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, he says, to God. Christian conversion demands a divine encounter. It might not be as dramatic as we see in the Apostle Paul's life, but becoming a Christian, when we become a Christian, this same opening of our eyes through an encounter with the glory of God, forcing us to see our sin must take place. For apart from this, there's no turning. There's no true repentance. Yes, we might feel bad over our sin, We might even mourn the fact that our sin has put us in a bad place. But true repentance is concerned with God. It is a realization of our sin before a holy God. And this awareness begins with a spiritual encounter with God's glory. And it says here that by turning, by repenting and turning, we are released from the power of Satan to the power of God where we receive two glorious things, forgiveness and acceptance. God forgives us through the cleansing blood of Jesus. And then He brings us into the company of the redeemed, the church, those who are sanctified by faith in Me. Every word important there. By faith we are set apart by Jesus. By faith we are made holy by Jesus. And by faith we are made part of Jesus' people. This is the story, this is the hope of the Old Testament that God truly raises the dead. See, the hope of Israel was not just the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel is the hope of mankind. What we ultimately need is not merely relational connections, stability in this life, We don't just merely need spiritual correction. We need what Israel needed. We need spiritual resurrection. We need life from the dead. And as we see here in this passage, Christian, conversion is a package deal. There's no such thing as like a base model and a deluxe model of conversion. If God has opened your eyes to the truth of who He is, and you have seen your sin and therefore turned to Him in repentance, then you have received forgiveness of your sin. And if you have received forgiveness of of your sin, then you have been accepted by God. And if you have been accepted by God, then you belong. And if you belong, you are sanctified, made holy through the work of Christ on your behalf. I say that. Because we all have to fight the temptation of believing the lie that as Christians we're we're not good enough. We're not holy enough. We're not forgiven enough. We're not accepted enough before God. Because honestly, that line of thinking is, I'll say this lightly, but it's ridiculous. Because in and of yourself, you are none of those things. You're not good enough. You're not holy enough. You're not forgiven enough. You can never stand before God in and of yourself. So when your focus is turned back on you trying to 
assess your spiritual state based upon yourself, the answer is always problematic. But that's the point he's saying. You were dead. Of course that's the reality in and of yourself. But you're dead no longer, Christian. As a believer, you're not in and of yourselves any longer. You're alive in Christ. We must trust the promises of God's Word. As Romans 8 11 promises, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies also through His Spirit which dwells within us. So we see this. Paul is simply rehearsing to Agrippa here. Look, Agrippa, all I am doing is believing the hope and promises of our fathers. That we need spiritual resurrection and God has provided it in Jesus. And that hope is not just for Israel, that hope is for all mankind. And Paul is here defending himself and defending his faithfulness to Judaism in light of Jesus. But he's also going to make an appeal here, a kingdom appeal. Verse 19, Therefore, O Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul said, I, I, I did what I was told, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent. They should turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul appeals to Agrippa that his current predicament is due to his, again, his faithfulness. His obedience to God. He obeyed the Lord's call on his life to preach the gospel. Damascus and then on to Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. He's following the call of the book of Acts. No matter, and no matter where Paul went, we preached to Jews, he preached to Gentiles. He didn't have two messages. Same message, repent. Turn to God. And repentance, he says, uh, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Turn from the Lord. Turn to Turn from yourself, turn to the Lord. And it's because of this message of repentance toward God that Paul says, that's why I'm wearing these chains. Verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help, I, I, have, I, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul testifies that I'm standing before you today, King, not because of your protection, but because God has helped me. And he continues to help me. And because of this, I testify to all people, small and great, no matter where I go, significant or insignificant, saying exactly, here's what he says, saying exactly, only, solely, what Moses and the prophets said would come to pass. Paul's no innovator of the faith. Paul's a faithful proclaimer of the Word of God. The Gospel was rooted in the ancient story of Israel. Whenever someone presents the Christian message today as some sort of innovative message with new insights that have not been known previously, because of a myriad of differing things, maybe our cultural moment that we're in, we should be very, very skeptical. We believe in an ancient message that began and is rooted in an eternal, unchanging God. 
God's word is not bound by any cultural moment or dictated by any cultural movement. Paul says, in my preaching, I am saying nothing more than what had been previously written. And Paul summarized this message as that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Three kind of components here. I think we could summarize them this way. Atonement, resurrection, and mission. That's the story of the Bible. Atonement, resurrection, mission. From Genesis to Revelation. Atonement. Worship of a holy God by sinners demands atonement. Satisfaction for atonement for sin was required. That was the foundational story of the people of, of Israel. God called the people out of Egypt. Why? Let my people go that they may worship me. Which required the sacrificial system, the shedding of blood. The Old Testament looked forward to the Lord's servant who would come to suffer to atone for the sins of His people. Paul says, Christ must suffer. Jesus is the suffering servant. Of Isaiah 53, Jesus was the one who was despised and rejected by men. He is the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds we are healed. All of the Bible... All of the reality of the sacrificial system, all of the reality of the language of atonement, all the reality of sins needing to be taken care of were meant to point us to the reality that He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The atonement necessary for sinful man to stand before a holy God is found in Jesus. Paul says, I didn't make that up. That's what Moses said. That's what the prophets said. Second, Jesus is also the resurrected Lord. Or as Paul says here, the first to rise from the dead. Meaning following Him, many else will rise. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all will be made alive. New life and resurrection power comes through Jesus. When Jesus was standing with Martha and Mary after Lazarus died, and Martha comes to, to Jesus and She's mourning and Jesus comforts her by saying, hey, Lazarus will rise again. She says, yes, Jesus, I'm a good Jew. I know he will rise on the last day. And Jesus looked at her and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, yet they die, they will live. All who believe in me will rise again. Jesus is atonement. He is resurrection power. And thirdly, he is mission. He is, Jesus is the light to the nations. That the Christ must suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is here confessing Simeon's song as he held Jesus in his arms. Jesus is the hope and glory of Israel, yes. And He is the light and revelation of God to the nations. The Great Commission that we've been walking out through the book of Acts, taking the gospel to the nations, the event in the book of Acts, it was not plan B of God's story of redemption. God called Israel to be a light to the nations to extend the blessing of God's covenant promises to the nation as announced in, in, in Genesis 12. 
Psalm 96 speaks of declaring the glory of Yahweh among all the nations. And in their spiritual inability, Israel failed in their role to be God's servant. And through the prophet Isaiah, even as we began in our call to worship, God spoke of His coming servant who would come to embody Israel, but more importantly, fulfill all that Israel did not. God's Spirit would rest upon this new one, this servant, whom He would give as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. And Jesus, Israel's task is fulfilled through the preaching of the Gospel, through the ministry of the church today. This speaks to us as the church. Really, I think, marks out our existence as the church. It tells us if we want to participate in our calling as the church, what should we be involved in? What should be central to who we are? Well, here it is. Atonement. Resurrection. And missions. We must keep the clear preaching of the sacrifice of Christ at the center of our ministry. Christ died for sinners. That must be central to who we are. It must mark our existence. And power must mark our existence. We have resurrection power. God called us to new life in Christ. He told us, rise. Come to Him. He's giving us His very Spirit to walk in the newness of life. We are to be a people marked by the power of the newness of life in the Spirit. It's what it means to be a church. It's what it means to be Christians. And that power is put on display in participating in God taking His name to the nations. It's too light a thing, He said of His servant, that you would only redeem Judah. You must go to the nations. Atonement, resurrection, and missions marks our life. Now saying these things, Paul, he gets a compliment from his buddy Festus in verse 24. He was saying these things, and in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he leans into Agrippa. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, he says. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, man, are you, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I think that contrast that Luke wanted us to see back in verse 23, he draws to a conclusion here. Remember how Agrippa and Bernice entered with great pomp, surrounded by the powerful and prominent men of the city. The, poor, the power, the wisdom, the might of the kingdom of man was on display. And then there was the Lord's apostle, escorted in to stand before this prestigious group in chains. 
And now, after trying to persuade Agrippa that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and the prophets, Agrippa responds, I interpret, I don't know, I imagine in sort of a backhanded tone. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Me? To which Paul, I think, fixed his gaze upon the king, the most prominent and powerful man in this region, and boldly said, King, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but everyone else standing here would become such as I, except for these chains. What a powerful statement regarding the truth of God's kingdom. Remember, Paul has been in chains for at least two years by now. And standing before the king who represents all this world has to offer, Paul does not say, King, I wish I could be like you. I'd love to be free. I'd love to just lay my head on not just your pillow, a pillow. I would love for one day to hold the power in my hands that you possess. It's not what he said. But I wish to God you'd be like me. Paul says, I don't envy you, brother. I don't even want to be like you in the least. I earnestly desire you receive what I have. Luke wants us to see that there is a rich, powerful, prominent man in this story, and it's not Agrippa. King Agrippa is a poor pauper before Paul who possesses the riches of God's kingdom in the Lord Jesus. Try and put yourself in Paul's shoes here for a moment. A believer born of the Spirit, been in chains for at least two years, you're standing before the most powerful pagan world leader. Would your heart be longing to be like the king? Or would you be longing that the king would become like you? Verse 30, Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. How many times have we heard that? And Agrippa said to Festus, Listen to these words. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul could have been released a long time ago. But Paul understood his life and ministry Paul understood all of reality and Paul understood the shackles on his very wrists through a different lens, through a different economy, not through the kingdom of man, but through the kingdom of God. Paul believed and he knew the words of Jesus who also stood before the powerful, prestigious king, ruler, Pilate, who was asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responded, my, my kingdom is not of this world. To which Pilate said, aha, so you're saying you are a king. Jesus said, you say that. He said, though, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I come into the world to bear witness to the truth. What kingdom are you aligning yourself with today? 
I could ask it another way. What value system are you operating by? You look at the prestige of this world with all its powerful people, with its wealth and prominence and opportunity, all that it offers. Do you tend to feel a poverty in your spirit? As if you want what's out there more? Or do you look to this world and all that it has to offer and see it as mere poverty compared to what you have in the Lord Jesus? Paul knew where the true treasure of the kingdom was found. He knew the unimaginable wealth of that moment when God opened his eyes. He understood the unsearchable expense of the forgiveness he had received. He knew the incomparable worth of being rescued from the power of Satan to receive the resurrected power of Christ. He cherished the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and being accepted into His kingdom. Christian, do you? Church, do we? Luke wants us to feel that. He wants that reality to settle on us. Because if we're looking through this text with mere kingdom of eyes, man, we would have to agree with Festus. Paul, bro, you're crazy. What are you doing? But Paul operated by a different economy. He knew, as he had said, before he entered Jerusalem, I count my life of no value or of no, not precious to myself, only that I may finish the course before me, finish the race that has been given to me, that I may testify to the gospel of God's grace. That was Paul's motive. That was his value of the kingdom. And we saw him live it out. If you're not a believer this morning, I humbly but yet clearly offer you Christ. He's here in the text. You see it. The hope of Israel is the hope of our heart. What are you hoping in? What are you looking for? What will happen to your soul after this life is over? If you gain everything that this world has to give you upon death, what happens to you? Don't be fooled. See the reality that Paul saw when God opened his eyes to the riches of the kingdom. That you could truly be set free from the power of Satan and be turned to God. To be forgiven and set free of your sin. And to be accepted by God and be a part of His people. Same way Paul says, repent, trust. In the power of the gospel. Christian, let this text confront us this morning. What kingdom are we aligning ourselves with? Where does our heart tend to go? What value system are we operating by? See Christ. Don't miss the treasure of the kingdom. Jesus, we thank you again for another wonderful text. Thank you again for our brother Paul, who convicts us, who helps confront us in our sin. And I think by this text helps refocus our heart to understand his life, not of a poor beggar, not of a sad story, not of a someone we should look down upon, but of a man of 
great wealth. A man who knew, without a doubt, the reality of the kingdom. And he knew its worth and value in such a way he was willing to stake his life on it. And I think Paul was a man who grew up to understand the heart and the song of our brother Simeon. It's enough, Lord. My eyes have seen the King. I've seen the hope of Israel, the glory of our people, and I have seen the light, the revelation of God to the nations. That's the capstone of my life. That's the purpose of it all. God, help us challenge our hearts. Convict us where we tend to peer out at things that of the world and have this ache and longing as if we're missing out on something. And cause us in those moments to stop, to press pause, to turn, to see our Lord Jesus and bask in the riches that we have in Him. Now we are more than blessed to even know You, much less to be citizens of Your kingdom, heirs of your kingdom and fellow participants of grace. We're thankful for Christ this morning. As we sing in just a moment, help us to focus our hearts and confess as we see the destined day arise, the treasure of the kingdom that awaits us. In Jesus' name, amen.